And I invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you weren't here last week, we are starting a series for the spring and winter in this little book. Last week's sermon was from Acts 17, which describes the planting of the church in Thessalonica. And this morning we'll look at the first five verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Do you have moles in your yard? If you don't know, you don't have them. Because if you have moles, like I do, you can tell. As they advance through the lawn, the ground is all churned up. It's very, very noticeable what they're doing, digging their little tunnels. If you hate moles, like I do, it's irritating. If you love them, you'll be ecstatic. Months after planting the church in Thessalonica, Paul is ecstatic because he is hearing of wonderful tunnels of influence, grace advancing through the lives of the believers in Thessalonica. Just like the mold tracks in my front yard, you can't miss them. So in the church in Thessalonica, you couldn't miss the fact that the grace of God had advanced into the hearts of the people. It was visible. You could see it. And that moves Paul to give thanks for their lives, verse 2. We thank God for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. And specifically, he is thankful for their reception of the grace of God. Verse 3, remembering your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. When grace advanced, when it plowed up their hearts, it was visible. When someone gives their life to Jesus Christ, you can tell. So I want to use that theme this morning in these five verses, this idea of advancing grace, and answer three questions that are implicit in the text. Number one, how do I become a Christian or the reception of grace? Number two, why did I become a Christian? The prior working of grace. And number three, based on the text, what is the evidence anyone becomes a Christian or the evidence of grace? Those are the three questions we're going to look at 
The second question, as you can tell from the outline, will occupy the vast majority of our time in the message. Number one, how do I become a Christian? If grace is advancing near me, how do I take a hold of it, as it were? Paul says in verse 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but in the Holy Spirit and power and with full conviction. Now, next week, we'll spend the whole sermon looking at the work of the Holy Spirit. For now, let's look at this word gospel. What is that? The Greek word gospel meant good news. Announcing something beneficial, helpful, good, liberating, and joyous. Like this. We won the game. I got a raise. I'm engaged. I got a job. That's, that's good news. You announce something that is joyful. Paul says it came to you in word. And we saw a summary of that last week from Acts 17, verses 2 and 3. Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So the Thessalonians and all of us in the room who have given our lives to Christ, we became Christians by hearing a message about a man, Jesus Christ. And it strikes a chord in your heart. It makes sense. You're persuaded. Let me just tease out a little bit what perhaps Paul explained, and I'll, I'll do so not on the text proper, but just knowing the writings of Paul, the mind of Paul, Paul would have brought the good news to them by explaining at least this much. Number one, the promise of Jesus' salvation. He opened the Old Testament. He showed all the promises of God. He showed all the foresight, the foreshadowing of what Messiah would look like. And he said, God kept his promise. When this man, Jesus, 30 years ago, appeared in Jerusalem, performing miracles, teaching, was crucified on a Friday near Passover, that's the man God promised was coming. This isn't new. This isn't odd. God is doing exactly what he promised to do for hundreds and hundreds of years. So our salvation is based on the promise of God. Secondly, the necessity of Jesus' salvation. What do I mean? Well, because Paul was a biblical thinker and he had a rabidly theocentric worldview, for him everything starts with God. This is where the Bible starts, in the beginning God. He could have reasoned the gospel something like this. Let's start with God and with you. God made you. That's obvious you didn't make yourself. God made you, as you confessed earlier in the service, to enjoy him and to glorify him forever. He didn't make you with any encumbrance, any barriers, any hindrance to doing that. He wants you to enjoy his presence without interference, giving him what he deserves. So this is the meaning of humanity. This is the meaning of life. This is the truth about what it means to be truly fulfilled, if you want, self-actualized as a human being. It is to enjoy the presence of God, giving him what he deserves, 
praise, thanksgiving, all and obedience. That's life. Any failure to do so creates an offense to God because he's worthy of these things. The Bible calls those offenses sin. And any offense, any failure to give God what he is owed and deserves, these offenses mount up and they create barriers between us and God. That's not good. And that establishes the sufficiency of Jesus' salvation. So you ask the question, what are the possibilities for how human beings can make a claim on the presence of God? What does it take to be back in the presence of God unencumbered, without hindrance? Well, you've got sin. So one answer is, one answer is, you have to do it all by yourself. And you probably know that doesn't work. You can't. You can't get rid of, you can't get rid of your own sin. You are your own sin. Second answer is, well, I do my part and Jesus makes up the rest. The reason that's a faulty answer is, first of all, your part is always going to be lacking. And secondly, Jesus doesn't need to make up the rest because there's absolutely Nothing lacking in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Nothing. You couldn't add a thing to it. And that's the third answer to the question about Jesus' sufficiency for our salvation. Jesus did it all in your place. In other words, Jesus came to cleanse you of all those offenses that have been built up, and Jesus came to give you that perfect righteousness without which you can't make a claim on the presence of God. That's what happened on the cross. In love, Jesus took your sin away. He removed the barrier. (laughs) And in exchange for your sin, he gives you his perfect righteousness. Think of it as, my life is an F-, minus. books and books and books of it. Jesus took them all in his his body on the cross. He removed them. And his A+, he's given you for your moral report card. That gives you the assurance that if you know Jesus, you have this Jesus, all your sin is removed, and you're as righteous as you ever need to be because you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's a gift. This good news is to be what? It's to be believed, trusted, accepted. Okay, that's, that's the first question. How do you become a Christian? You believe the promise of God to save you through Jesus. Just a a little side note, because it's a pet peeve of mine, and probably dangerous to talk about pet peeves, but I'll do it anyway. We have a saying in American Christianity that, ask Jesus into your heart. It's not really a biblical saying. You become a Christian by believing a promise. God says the moment you trust Jesus' work counts for you, you are justified in his sight. You believe a promise. Because sometimes I don't know whether Jesus is in my heart, but I know this, God makes promises, and the Spirit of God gives me the supernatural ability to believe the promise is good for me. And that's the first one. Second question. Why did I become a Christian? or the prior working of the grace of God. So it's interesting in verse 4 that Paul says, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. Why are they Christians, beloved? Well, tell me from the text, why are they Christians? He chose them. Why did he choose them? He loved them. If God chooses you, 
to belong to his son? It's because he loves you. Stunningly beautiful. He loved you from all eternity, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to become conformed to his son. If you're a follower of Jesus, that means before the world was ever created, God saw you, he knew you, and he said, I'm going to make that man or woman, child, belong to my son Jesus. And God did it. He chose us. I've been pastoring for more than 30 years, and I'm well aware that people struggle with this doctrine. I'm aware of that. You might struggle with it. I'm very sympathetic. In fact, let me just say, if anything I say is troubling, doesn't seem unbiblical, or raises all sorts of questions in your mind, and I can't answer them all in the sermon, please see me out or see one of your elders, because I'm going to preach what your elders and your deacons have been taught and believe. But mark this very carefully. We're answering the question now not... How do I become a Christian? I've already answered that. You become a Christian by believing the promise of the gospel. And I'm not answering the question, who can become a Christian? As far as we're concerned, everyone in the world can become a Christian because Jesus told us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The gospel is for everyone. This is only answering the question, why in the world did I ever believe this stuff to begin with? And it's it's interesting If you think about all of Paul's epistles, he usually writes to churches who have problems, either doctrinal problems or moral problems. I don't know of any church he wrote to, to believers who had problems with this doctrine. He he doesn't get letters that he responds to saying, what's all this election stuff, Paul? What do you mean about predestination? What do you mean God chose us? Nobody seems to struggle with it. (laughs) But some of us do, and that's okay. I wonder if the reason they don't struggle with it is because in their experience they knew they'd never believe this stuff if left to themselves. I believe that about me. I would absolutely never believe in Jesus if God didn't give me the gift of faith. I just wouldn't. I know that about myself. So let's tease it out a little bit. What is the issue when it comes to the doctrine of election? I mean, the Bible uses these words chosen, predestined, elected... So the question is, what do the words really mean? And I'll be honest, not all Christians agree with what I'm about to teach you. They they see it differently. The issue is this. Does the desire to belong to Jesus naturally reside in our hearts? Does the desire to repent and believe, does it exist in our hearts in our natural condition? All the biblical, biblical data says it does not. It does not naturally reside in our hearts. And I want to assume for a second that some of you consider you don't consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you're not even a theist. You're not sure you even believe in God. You understand this, don't you? You, you know that in your heart there's no innate desire to give your life to God. You, you understand this. As I said a moment ago, I understand this, and frankly, Most Christians I know would never say the reason I'm a Christian is I'm smarter than somebody else. I don't know many Christians like that. The way the Bible puts it is kind of ingenious and simple. It says, look at your natural birth and compare it to your spiritual birth. How many of you willed your natural birth? Okay, let the record show nobody raised their hand. That's because you and I had no say in whether mom and dad had us. 
We had no say in it. We were completely passive in the decision. We were just born. The Bible says the same is true about being born again. We're passive. We had no say in it. God brought it to pass. So look at the verses. The Apostle Peter, first epistle, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Why were you born again? He caused it. Out of great mercy. <laughs> James 1.8, In the exercise of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. See, there's faith in me because God created it that way. I'm a creature that belongs to Jesus because God exercised his will bringing me forth through the word of truth. 1 Corinthians 1.30 And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus. Not because of my decision. Because of him, you're in Christ. And Jesus, put it, uh, uh, John, put it this way in the beginning of his gospel, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, what you have so far is the answer to what question? We've already seen it in the sermon. Though, though the verse I just read answers what question? How do I become a Christian? Answer, receive and believe. The last part of verse is answering the question we're answering now. Answering the question we're answering now. Why did I ever believe and receive? And here's the answer. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. How do you know you've been born of God? You believe and receive. You can never believe and receive until you've been born of God. See, somebody can't stick a gun to your head and say, believe, the Je believe in Jesus or, or else, <laughs> and I'm never going to do it on my own, which we're about to explore why right now. The necessity of election. The Bible does not portray human beings in their, in their natural state as desperately sick. It portrays us as dead. Dead. Ephesians 2.1, Joe Alder read it earlier. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and were by nature children of wrath. Spiritually dead. Colossians 2, parallel thought. Paul writes... When you were dead in your sins, he made you alive together with Christ. When, you were made, when were you made alive together with Christ? When you were dead. Dead people don't bring themselves to life. God does. That's advancing grace. You were brought to life when you were in a state of deadness. It's just really good news. The Israelites. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, it's, it's almost funny. He writes, yet to this day, God has not given you a heart to know, eyes to see, or ears to hear. Why don't the Israelites hear, see, or know God? According to the verse, why not? God hasn't given it. Now, if you and I were standing there listening to Moses preach this sermon, we should, we should say what? Give me the heart. Give me the eyes. Give me the ears. We're responsible to do that. The point of spiritual death is we have as much appetite for God, for spiritual things, as a dead person has an appetite for food. just doesn't happen. Nobody ever said laying in a casket, I'm hungry. We naturally have no desire, no appetite, no inclination, no leaning to move towards God. 
And so Paul writes in Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not even one, none who understands, none who seeks God. Together they've turned aside, no one who does good. No one naturally seeks God. No one naturally understands. Jesus put it this way, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He wishes. He who hears my word and believes has passed out of death into life. Now the last phrase is answering what question? How do I become a Christian? Hear my word and believe. The result is I will have passed out of death into life. Why would that ever happen? Jesus willed it. There's a very popular understanding in American Christianity about spiritual death that says spiritual death is being separated from God. I personally, as a theologian, find it wholly lacking because I could be separated from my wife and pining for her all the while. Spiritual death does mean we're separated from God, but we have an aversion to God. We want nothing to do with Him. Our heart's disposition, whether or not we consciously know it, is keep your grubby hands off my life. So Paul writes, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, while we were sinners, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to us. And you see the adjectives there that describe us in our natural state, sinners, helpless, enemies, and ungodly. So look at Romans 8, 7, and 8. The mindset on the flesh, that's the mind you're born with. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Those in the flesh cannot please God. Same sentiment echoed in John 3.19, the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light. That's spiritual death. And just to take it a little, little further... This blind, depraved condition leaves us in a darkened state of understanding. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man, that's the way we're all born into this world, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolish to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Now, he's not talking about permission. As far as we're concerned, anyone in the world is at liberty to understand them. He can't. That's expressing ability. The ability isn't there because there's no spiritual connector in them that would move us to God. No desire. Paul would later write in Ephesians 4, describing, he wants the believers there to know what God rescued them from. And he puts it this way, you used to walk in the futility of your mind, darkened in your understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in you, the hardness of your heart, and having become callous, they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of, of um, impurity with a continual lust for more. Now you might be thinking, this is so depressing. I actually find this incredibly helpful because it explains why I, I realize I have no natural interest in God. I mean, it's hard enough as a believer in Jesus Christ for 40 years to take an interest in the things of Jesus. It's hard, isn't it, right? But... But what's the explanation that so few people, relatively speaking, are interested in God? This explains it. It's, it's really helpful. And the Old Testament prophets foresaw this when Ezekiel 11:19 says, I shall put a new spirit within them and remove the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. I mean, if you're a believer in Jesus, that happened to you. God in love and mercy took your old heart out. You can't do this to yourself. He took out your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh. What could be more humbling? 
If you're not a follower of Jesus, you have every right to demand of your Christian friends that they be the most humble people on the face of the earth. Because we are followers of Jesus merely by the pure, kind, gracious, sovereign choice of God. We have nothing to brag about. Nothing. We ought to be the most humble. So therefore, beloved, as we sort of close out this this portion... We remain ignorant of God until he wills to reveal himself to us. Look, we're dead. Until God does something about that, we remain ignorant of God. Paul writes, uh, excuse me, Jesus said, no one knows the Son except the Father, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom he wills to reveal him. John 6, 44, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. Paul, in his great treatise on this doctrine in Romans 9, then, so then, it, salvation, does not depend on the man who rules or the man who runs, but it depends on God. If, if you have questions about what I'm saying and, and you want to sort of take it up in one whole chapter of the Bible, Romans 9 is a really good place to start. Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. What should I do to them? Humble them. Put them in awe. Fill them with confidence and joy. He, my goodness, he chose me. You've got to be kidding me of all people. And then when people are getting converted, particularly the Gentiles in the book of Acts, uh, Luke writes, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How many believed? As many as God appointed. That's it's always the case. I love Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So Paul goes down to a river. There's, uh, she's from Thyatira. This is outside of Philippi. He's doing a Bible study. He's preaching the gospel, maybe some of the stuff I said earlier. And everybody's sitting there. And in their natural state, what's happening to Paul's words? That's what's happening. Or, it's bouncing off their... In their natural state, they're dead. They can't hear the Word of God. They can't see the glory of Christ. They can't understand. And so what happens? Paul's words go, and God does this to Lydia's heart. <laughs> Accept it, believe it, it makes sense. Yes, it's for me. What mercy, beloved, what glory that can happen to anyone, anyone in the room. I want to illustrate it uh, with an illustration called the lake illustration. And that is, how many different ways do people conceive human beings can be saved? There's four. One is, man is thrashing around on the surface of the lake. He swims ashore and saves himself. That's called humanism. If you look at the Humanist Manifesto put out in the 1960s in America, it says just that. Man must save himself. Then my view is man thrashing on the surface of the water. God's on the shoreline. They swim together, meet each other halfway, and everything's... I would call that some form of theological liberalism. The third view is man thrashing around on the surface of the water, and God in his mercy provides everything necessary for his salvation. He gives his son Jesus to die on the cross. God comes out sees you thrashing on the surface of the water, reaches his hand down and says, now it's up to you. I'm not going to force myself on you. You've got to make the decision. I don't do this for you. It's up to you. That has a technical theological term. I won't bother with it. Don't worry about it. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you are where? Dead at the bottom of a lake where it is dark and wet and awful. And salvation is God gets you. He raises you up. He breathes life into you. And you look and you say, Jesus, I believe in you. That's the glory of God's electing grace. 
He gets the glory. He gets the glory. This doctrine is not answering the question, who can be saved? If you're sitting there thinking, I don't believe, I don't believe in Jesus, this means there's no chance for me, that's not true. The chance is, God is the only one who can change your heart. God is the only one who can bring you from death to life. And this is tremendous comfort for believers, not speculation about Uncle Joe who's not a believer. This doctrine is for you, beloved, to latch on and say, oh, oh Lord, you saved me? Yes, you can save anyone. So if you feel the need to be saved, rest assured, call on the name of the Lord, he will save you. That is the promise of Romans 10.9. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay. So far, so good. Actually, have more to say about this doctrine when we do a little series later in the summer, but don't worry about that for now. The effects of salvation. Is it clear that this should, if you find yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, that this should give you security, it should give you comfort? Look, I'd never be a believer if God hadn't done this. I wouldn't believe this. Are you kidding? God did this. If he started it, he'll finish it. That's why Hebrews says Jesus is the author and the finisher of my faith. Holy cow, that's good stuff. So my heart can be at rest, full of confidence, full of humility, full of praise. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Nothing can snatch them out of my hand. If that's not assuring, I don't know what is. Beloved, this comfort from this doctrine never makes you complacent. Rightly understood, it makes you a worshiper. You can't stand enough in awe of the God who did this for you. And far from quenching evangelism, it gives you the promise that evangelism will be effective. Look, look at the Thessalonians. He says in verse 6, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. They knew they were elect. They knew God in love chose them. It motivated them to do evangelism. Okay. This is real short as we finish the sermon. Real short. What's the evidence you believed? What are the tangible, what's the tangible visibility of grace? And yeah, we could say a billion things about this. Just very quickly, just like when the moles are doing their thing in my front yard, you can see it. They're advancing. Advancing grace is evident. Sovereign grace, far from stifling Christian virtue, actually is really the only thing that can produce it in its right form. It creates an explosion of spiritual blessings, faith, hope, and love. So here are three tests, briefly, to see if grace is advancing in you. Number one, is your faith working? Is your faith working? True faith changes your priorities. It changes what's important to you. It changes the way you live. It makes you humble. You can visibly see the way you treat other people, the way you manage your time, the what you do with your money. And particularly this doctrine affects the way you treat the down and outers and people with whom you have difficulty. You have an enormous amount of patience with them. Because you were an outsider to God until he elected you. And he lavished your life with love, significance, assurance. Secondly, is your love laboring? You know, the word labor there was used of manual work, sweat. Is, is, is your love sweating? 
The point is, wherever grace goes into a human heart, it never stays there. It's never static. It splashes out on those around you. That, that, that's grace love. It changes the way you treat others. And finally, is your hope steadfast? The Christian hope is we are inheriting an unshakable kingdom. Unshakable. Earned by Jesus, secured by his cross, guaranteed by his resurrection just waiting to be delivered to us. And that gives us a very healthy perspective on the shifting sands of the world that we live in, where nothing is sure, but the Christian hope is sure. <laughs> and as, as you grow in grace, particularly embracing this doctrine, if the Bible teaches it, then it's good for you. <laughs> if the Bible teaches it, you need to believe it. <laughs> as this doctrine changes you, the world's glories grow faint, and increasingly you, increasingly, you live to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Well, that was fast, Lord. Sorry for speeding along here. I'm very thankful for my brothers and sisters, their patience, their love of you, the love of your word. Lord, it seems to me as a frail human being that your word is really, really clear on this, that we are dead until you bring us to life, and that gives you all the glory and our salvation. That is what we want. It should make us profoundly humble and filled with hope and confidence and assurance and comfort. Bring us these graces. Let our lives be like moles, Evident that grace is moving into us and through us for the glory of Jesus. Amen.